0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download.
1: This is your icebreaker. So, Sir Walter Raleigh comes back from America with a present for Queen Elizabeth I. And she says, what is it? And he said, well, you roll it up. And she rolls it up and he he says, you light the end of it. And she lights the end of it. And she starts coughing and she says, that's disgusting. What is it? And he said, it's a potato.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from writer Nick Hornby, that'll help break the ice. He wrote
0: the new movie Wild, and we'll speak with him later. Plus, we'll speak with actor Michael Cera about
2: actor Gene Wilder, talking about the great film director, Jean Renoir. It's a babushka doll interview. Plus, musician Connor Oberst evokes The Clash, and we talk to punk legend Viv Albertine, who dated members of The Clash. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talks. All week
0: long, you've been hearing these headlines. House lawmakers passed a bill that would roll back President Obama's
3: executive actions on immigration.
0: A huge march is planned following a grand jury decision to clear the NYPD officer for the death of Eric Garner.
3: The embarrassing corporate hack of Sony Pictures Entertainment.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Anna Sales. She is the host of the WNYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. It's our first week on WNYC, but we would have had her here anyway. Anna. (laughs)
3: Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank
0: you. So, So, um, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend besides our show on WNYC? Well I'm
3: I'm going to be talking about that at my dinner party on Friday night and then I'm also going to be talking about how the movie Stuart Little saved a long lost masterpiece that had gone missing in Hungary.
2: What? Explain.
3: Imagine this. You're a researcher at the National Gallery in Hungary. You're watching a movie from 10 years ago with your daughter called Stuart Little and then you spot a painting in the back of Stuart Little's living room (sighs) that's been missing
2: oh my for
3: gosh. 90 years from Hungary.
2: How did that... This shows uh,
0: how big budgets were back then, that they would put great (laughs) art in movies. Just randomly. I I think they used the statue of David in Mannequin. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Guernica, they just
0: used as a rug, I think. Budgets were so big back then.
3: No, what? It was actually purchased 500 bucks at a flea market in Pasadena. Of course, nobody knew that it was a famous missing painting, and so this art researcher in Budapest started emailing everyone he could find from the Stuart Little crew, and Mm -hmm. eventually connected with an assistant set designer who said, sure, next time you're in the U.S., come by and see if it's real. So what's happening this week? So that assistant set designer sold it to an art collector, and that art collector is now auctioning it off Uh, in Hungary. The auction is next Saturday. Yes. What
2: happens if Sony Pictures bids for it and just takes it right back? They just really liked it in their prop department. With the proceeds from Stuart well,
3: Little? Well, there was a Stuart Little 2 and Stuart Little 3, so they may yeah. use it
2: in Stuart Little 4. Oh, man. I, I think
0: in Stuart Little 3, they used the Shroud of Turin as a shower curtain. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a controversy.
2: Anna Sale, thank you so much for the small talk. Sure, thank you. And now, time for Cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we
0: tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in the form
2: of a cocktail. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze.
0: First, the history part. This week, back in 1992, a momentous message was sent.
2: A momentous, very short message. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: OMG. Are you sick of cell phone abbreviations like OMG? You can blame them on Friedheim Hillebrand. The year was 1984, long before most people owned or cared about cell phones. But Hillebrand and other telecom engineers were already working on a way to let cell users not only make calls, but also send each other text messages. The problem? Data bandwidth back then was in short supply. So messages would have to be short enough not to use much data but long enough to actually convey a useful amount of information. What should the maximum length be? One night, Hillebrand sat down and typed out a bunch of random sentences. All of them, he found, contained fewer than 160 characters. So did the typical message on a standard postcard. Eight years later, on December 3rd, 1992, the first text ever was sent via SMS, the short message service Hillebrand helped create. Maximum message length, 160 characters. Hillebrand didn't send that first text. A 22-year-old engineer did the honors, typing the message out on a computer and sending it to the phone of Richard Jarvis, an executive at the company Vodafone. The message read, Merry Christmas. Jarvis, by the way, couldn't respond. His then-cutting-edge cell phone had no way of inputting text. No one knew if text messages would ever catch on with the public, but we all know they did, especially as other messaging services allowed longer character counts. In 2010, users sent 6.1 trillion texts. BTW, that's about 193,000 per second.
2: So that was the history. Now for the drink to go with it. On the line is Typhoon Babayit. He is bartender at Shaker's Cocktail Bar. That is in Bonn, Germany, where Friedheim Hillebrand decided upon the maximum length of an SMS text. Typhoon, what drink did that story inspire?
5: Yeah, as you know, Mr. Hillebrand is from Bonn. So we named it like him. It's called The Hillebrand.
2: Of course. Uh,
5: By the way, Mr. Hederbrand, thank you for the good job.
2: (laughs) Uh, Do you text a lot? uh,
5: Yeah. If if I had not to work seven days a week, then I have time to text a little bit.
2: Oh, man, they're working you hard if you don't have time to text. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what is in this drink?
5: Um, The ingredients are vodka, fresh lime juice, and Sprite, or 7-Up.
2: Why those ingredients?
5: Um, I made this drink for me at first, years ago, but I had no name for this. And five years ago, two or I don't know, three guys were sitting in front of me and they're asking me for a special drink, which is not uh, on the menu. So uh, I served them this drink and they were talking about the story of Hillebrand. So we named it, like him.
2: These guys just happened to be hanging out at the bar talking about Friedheim Lebrand.
5: Yeah, I don't know why. Because uh, they had uh, cell phones uh, and talked about short messages. And so they talked about him. And then I said, OK, it sounds good.
2: So you named it after a local hero. Right. I, I also like, by the way, the fact that it's kind of, it's a simple...
5: It's, it's simple, yeah. It's, it's short and it's simple, like uh, the uh, SMS, yeah?
2: Yeah, no garnish even, just bare bones. Uh, you,
5: you can garnish it with uh, a zest of, or lime or lemon, or as you know, the first uh, message was Merry Christmas, so you can take also uh, a maraschino cherry.
2: I get, oh, yeah, so it's red, kind of like Santa Claus. Yeah, right. Also, that little uh, pop of color, maybe when the drink arrives, that'll distract you from whatever conversation you're having, <laughs> like a text.
5: Yeah, maybe. <laughs>
2: And Brendan, just another little detail here. Okay. The portable cell phone on which the first text message was received back in 92 uh-huh. weighed four and a half pounds, <laughs> which equals about 16 new iPhones. Yeah. Can That's you really true. still
0: call that portable? I don't, I
2: don't It's know. like you're it's, hitting a VCR.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, people, our cocktails only weigh a few ounces each, and you can find recipes for all of them at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made some small talk, had a cocktail, and now this party needs some music. And
0: here with suggestions is singer-songwriter Connor Oberst. 20 years back, he formed the band Bright Eyes. And since then, his sharp lyrics, quavering voice, and blend of indie folk and punk have amassed him a devoted following. Here he is to spin some tunes.
6: Hi, I'm Connor Oberst. And I'm very excited about my dinner party tonight. And I'm starving. Without further ado, here is my calorie-laden dinner party soundtrack. And the first track, as the guests are arriving, is by a band called the Soso so Glows with Island Riding.
0: Another summer for the city And on the 33 bus downtown You said'm
6: I wanted to get the guests pumped up at this party, so we're gonna start on an upbeat note while the finger foods are getting passed around. Maybe some people even will even dance, you know, with those. Crab rolls in their hands.
7: See me all around town An angry boy is a boy.
6: I mean, I think of it as some kind of combo of The Clash and Strokes. They got something to say, you know. They're not afraid to, to convey ideas. Um, I've noticed with some current New York music, it, it has more to do with how much uh, reverb you can put on your voice, so no one will hear what you're saying and possibly be able to critique it. But this is good old-fashioned punk rock. As all the guests are getting comfortable and relaxing, I think I will play one of my favorite Nina Simone songs. She didn't write it, it was written by Jerry Jeff Walker but we're going to hear her beautiful, timeless version of Mr. Bojangles.
1: I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you.
6: It's a beautiful song. Although the story itself, there might be a bit of uh, melancholy, I think that since the first time I've heard this song, I've never been able to shake the power of it.
4: He just up and died. After 20 years
6: he still green. She has the kind of voice that only comes along every few hundred years. Mr. Sometimes she doesn't sing perfectly in pitch, but it's an imperfection which is better than any perfection could be, you know? I don't think I have that going on with my voice, but mine is also not perfect, so I guess we share that. So at this point in the dinner, people are starting to get full, but it's so delicious they want to eat on. And uh, I decided to put on John Prine, and this is a song called Long Monday.
1: You and me, sitting in the back of my memory,
6: like a honeybee. Buzzing around a glass of sweet Chablis John Prine is a folk singer, I suppose, for lack of a better word, a poet, a songwriter, and another national treasure. Headlights shining like silver moons rolling on the ground Long Monday comes off an album called Fair and Square, which was a little later in his career, I think it was the early 2000s, after he had just beat back throat cancer, and so his his voice is a little lower and a little gravelier, but it works so well on this song. And this is Mindy Smith's incredible harmony on this chorus. gonna be a long like to tick of o'clock. let's come wow. This song is a quiet, easily digestible song, which will go down like a smooth shot of Fernet. I don't often play my own music at my own dinner parties, but I know it's a surefire way to clear a room and to get the guests on their way, so I decided to play my song Hundreds of Ways. What a thing to be a witness to the sunshine, What a dream to just be walking on the ground. Well, Hundreds of Ways are about all the possible paths we can walk down each day. You just have to decide on one. So, as the guests leave, they have to choose their own path. Will they go home? Will they find an after party? Will they just drive until they run out of gasoline? It's up to them.
2: Honor his latest album is called Upside Down Mountain. This month he plays benefit concerts on both U.S. coasts. Check out dinnerpartydownload.org for info. All
0: right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Nick Hornby, Michael Sarah, and Momos. Not Mumos. Nope. When the dinner party download continues, continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download,
2: Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, actor Michael Cera talks about performing on Broadway and rats out his co-stars on Arrested Development.
8: Jason Bateman said the most insane things to me in front of my
0: mother. Sounds like Bateman could have
2: benefited from our Weekly Etiquette segment. That is true. Speaking of which, let's do it. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is writer Nick Hornby. He is the author of bestsellers like High Fidelity and About a Boy. Both of those were turned into hit movies. Speaking of movies, he also writes those, including the new film, Wild. It is the adaptation of Cheryl Strayed's incredibly popular memoir about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and confronting the pain of her life. And, Nick, welcome. It's an honor. Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So we're we're super excited to have you here today. And I was mentioning to a co-worker you were coming in, who was a fan of yours, by the way, And he was like, Nick Hornby wrote the screenplay for Wild? (laughs) And I think even decades after writing High Fidelity, people associate you with smart stories about people who are into pop culture.
1: What led you to this? Well, actually, Cheryl's into pop culture. And one of the ways in which I really responded to the book was her relationship with all culture, actually, with Mm. poetry and songs and movies and I think one of the great things about the book and one of the reasons it's taken off in the way that it has is it puts the kind of hopeless liberal arts sensibility into that trail, um, yeah. so it's really not a book for experienced hikers or
2: about experienced hikers. Yeah, that's true. Am I correct in remembering that you're a producer on this film as well?
1: Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't mean an awful lot, I think. Um, <laughs> you, you get to a stage when you've had a couple of movies made where one's agent asks for
2: a producer credit <laughs> and one gets one.
0: Wow, I look forward to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it'll happen. Thank you, but, Nick. But my yeah. question
2: being, as a producer, did you have a lot of influence on the music in the film? There is a lot, especially uh, Simon and Garfunkel.
1: Well, I, I took a couple of things from the book, added a few more that it seemed to me that a person like Cheryl would like. What, what was one of yours? Uh, tougher than the rest, Bruce Springsteen.
0: All right. <laughs> it's nice to think of Bruce on the Pacific Trail. Yeah, exactly. Far away from his native environs.
2: <laughs> in the In both the book and the movie, You're right. She's inspiring herself with literary quotes. She's singing pop songs to herself. There is some parallel between the journey of a hiker and being a writer, this kind of long, lonely slog. What do you do to keep your spirits up when you're stuck in the middle of a book or a script?
1: Well, I do listen to a lot of music. Music is petrol to me. It's one of the things that goes in and comes out in a different form, I think. It's a sound that I'm trying to convert. But I I, I think anything you read, any movies you watch, any music you listen to, it all goes in there and comes out as something.
0: I hope you're right, Nick. (laughs) Because (laughs) I I consume a lot of stuff and I sometimes fear it drains out of my brain like a bathtub when the week begins. No,
2: no, it's it's all in there. None of it's gone. All Brendan has to do is watch one more rerun of M.A.S.H. and he'll be ready to (laughs) write his novel. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Nick, we have all of these Etiquette questions. Our listeners are desperate for answers. You ready for these? I'm ready. So our first question comes from Dar in Los Angeles. She
0: writes, "When is the appropriate time in a relationship to merge music and book collections? When you move in together? Get married? Never?
1: Oof, tough. Uh, I think you should do it the first time you go around someone's house." <laughs>
2: <laughs> to merge and then your... you
1: really put pressure on them you, you you go you check out what books and and music they've got and then you go home and you chuck all yours and then you say to the person you have to move in with me now because I've junked all right. everything that we have in common <laughs> so you don't so much merge collections you get rid of yours and
2: take theirs
1: yeah exactly but um i mean it's interesting because how's this going to work in like one generation's time are people going to say Darling, we have two of these. Let's delete them and put them in the cloud. <laughs> this is true. We all own everything anyway without ever paying right. any money for it.
2: R- Humanity has That's merged right. its record collection in the cloud. <laughs> We're already living together. Why do we fight?
1: Why are we at war? <laughs> well, I think the real
0: trouble is going to be trying to find a mate when you go to their house and you have no conversation piece because you're just staring at a silver <laughs> box. There is
1: absolutely nothing. <laughs> you too use the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I like everything piece of music in the world as well I see you do
0: we have that in common yeah all right well there you go Dara somewhere in there lies an answer the
2: truth and great wisdom yeah all right, all right. All right. here's something from Chris in Chapel Hill North Carolina and uh, this kind of goes to one of your first books fever pitch which is about your sports obsession is it okay to pat someone on the rear end as in good job during a casual pickup basketball game.
1: <laughs> Being English, we haven't touched anyone uh, since decades since the Queen knighted Sir Francis Drake. <laughs> Hands yeah. off! There you go.
2: So yeah. I think
0: there's your answer, Chris. It's so not okay. It's
1: never okay. It's never okay to shake their hand or anything. All right. right. So this next question comes
0: from Tim in Lexington, Massachusetts, and Tim writes. I am so sick of people telling me when I express a positive view about a movie that, quote, the book was better. Mm. I'm willing to accept that the book was good. In fact, I love books. But books and movies do different things. How do I politely convey this sentiment, you know, without coming across like a jerk?
1: Well, the first thing to say is there are a lot more people that see movies than read books. so I'm very impressed that all your friends are so down on movie adaptations. Well done, Tim. Um, I mean, obviously, I've had some experience of this. It doesn't matter what book it is and what the movie's like, people will always say, my favourite scene was missing. (laughs) That is the (laughs) the rule of movie adaptation. I mean, movies are something different. That's all you can say. And in terms of screen time, a movie is very crudely a quarter of the length of a book. Mm. So three quarters of it is missing. Sometimes movies can give greater emotional punch than a book but they can never be quite as sophisticated. There's just nothing you can do about it. Do you think
0: as an author who now you've adapted a couple books, do you approach it differently maybe than someone who hasn't written a novel?
1: The only way I approach it differently is um, I always make sure that the writer is in the loop. Sometimes books can disappear literally for years. You know, there can be 2 or 3 years in that process where you simply don't know what's going on or what's happened to
2: it. And was there actually a moment where Cheryl was you wanted to do something to the script and Cheryl was dead set against it? No, never ever. And I, I said to her at the beginning, you will
1: find parts of this difficult, especially as it's a, a memoir and it's a very, very yeah. personal memoir. Yeah. Effectively, she has to watch her own mother die on on screen and that that's a very difficult experience, but She was never phased for a moment. Really, Mm. It seems like,
2: because when you're cutting a scene out of her book, you're cutting a scene out of her life. Yes, (laughs) yes. You're reducing her life by about 15 years. (laughs) I mean, she had nothing to say. She
1: always understood that the movie had to be an hour and three quarters long and the book was 400 pages long.
0: I have a question, Nick, not for spoilers, but do you still have the character walking down the Pacific Crest Trail? Because that was my favorite part (laughs) of the book. (laughs)
1: It's now on Mars. No, it's all about the backstory. There's no trailing. Oh, darn it. I think you missed an opportunity. (laughs) Now, you see, this is where you're naive. Do you want to go and see Wild, too? I think you do.
2: (laughs) That's why why I'm a producer on this movie. This is
1: why you get the producer credit. (laughs) Exactly,
2: exactly. (laughs) Oh, man, Nick Hornby. I'm learning here. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. That was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Nick Hornby, he wrote the new movie Wild and a new
2: novel called Funny Girl which is out in February. And folks, if you have etiquette questions, send them to us and we will have a person of note answer them post-haste. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact.
3: And now, time to eavesdrop.
2: Writer and novelist Megan Dom is a columnist for the LA Times. Today, we overhear her share a morsel from her new essay collection.
9: This is Megan Dom. I'm going to be reading from my new book, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. One of the threads that runs through the book has to do with this feeling of not liking things that we're supposed to like. And this is from an essay called On Not Being a Foodie. I hate food. Not that I don't consume it. Like any decent American, I often consume too much of it. I just hate thinking about it. I hate shopping for it, preparing it, serving it, and cleaning it up and putting it away. Though I would take cleaning up over cooking any day. Cooking fills me with a dread I can only describe as the sum total of every negative feeling I have ever had about myself. It takes my chronic impatience, divides it by my inherent laziness, and multiplies it to the power of my deepest self-loathing. My approach to cooking is not unlike the approach many people take when confronted with their least favorite exercise in a fitness class. I fake my way through it and hope no one's watching. I wait for it to be over. (laughs) Past a certain age, it becomes tiresome to blame one's deficits on one's parents. The fact that my parents eschewed just about every activity not related to the arts doesn't mean I couldn't have devoted some part of my adult life to seeing past their biases and trying new things. I've had plenty of time to learn how to make risotto or even carve a turkey. That I have found myself in the prime of life, which is to say early middle age, that evanescent period where relative youth intersects with relative prosperity, in an era of cronuts and artisanal pickles is both sadly ironic and kind of sweetly perfect one of the great pleasures of trends is the option of sitting them out being a non-foodie in a world of heirloom tomato ketchup and chanterelle mushroom omelets means saving time and money that could be spent elsewhere for instance on Heinz ketchup slathered on greasy diner omelets It means it's not necessarily a tragedy if you die before making it to Italy. Not that it wouldn't be very sad. It means knowing your spouse didn't marry you for your cooking or your ability to pick restaurants. It means respecting food items that are too often denigrated and mocked. Miracle Whip, butter-flavored margarine, baking mixes of all kinds. My parents were not religious, but we did celebrate Christmas and every Christmas morning, my mother served a marbled coffee cake that had somehow been dubbed Baby Jesus's Birthday Cake. But the recipe my mother worked from was in my grandmother's handwriting, where it was called Jewish Coffee Cake. My grandmother, who probably knew fewer than five Jews throughout her entire life, must have seen it as an exotic delicacy. Later, I worked from a recipe my mother had written out for me. I can't give it away but I can tell you that it calls for white cake mix, vanilla instant pudding, and a carton of sour cream, among other ingredients available not just at your local supermarket, but probably also at your local 7-Eleven. I can also tell you that everyone I have ever made it for has said it's the best coffee cake they've ever tasted. And they're right. It's really the best thing in the world.
0: Megan Dom reading an essay from her new collection, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. And you're listening, ironically, to The Dinner Party Download from
2: American Public Media. And now the main course, the part of the show where Megan Dom stops listening because yep. we're going to talk about food. <laughs> That's right. So, Rico, the momo
0: is having a moment. All right. And the momo is? It's a dumpling and a staple of Tibetan
2: and Nepalese cuisine. That's right. For those who didn't get the memo, yes, the momo memo. And as
0: you've noticed, it's a fun word. No question. So there's been an influx of Tibetan and Nepalese immigrants to Jackson Heights, Queens, and they've brought the momo with them. And a guy named Jeff Orlick, who lives in the neighborhood, fell in love with these things. And he now runs an increasingly popular momo
7: crawl, The other day, I met up with Jeff to get more Momo info. There are 17 places that serve Momo's within about a half mile of where we're standing. How did you discover Momo's? You can't miss them. If you walk near the train station over here, every other store is serving Momo's around here.
0: You know, I'm talking to you because you really got into Momo's and you started to do an annual event. So can you tell me about that?
7: So the annual event is the Momo Crawl. We've been doing it for the last three years. The first year was about 30 people. It was just like my friends and some other freaks. And then last year it got, it was 80 people. Everyone had to go to a different place, to every place, and at the end we voted on the winner. And we presented this giant golden Momo for the winner last year. And how did the event go this year? This year the event exploded. It was crazy. It was about 800 people. Everyone loves the Momo. I love the Momo and I haven't had one yet. And part of the reason I love it is because I like the word. Exactly. That's, that's totally it. It's not... Intimidating at all? It's just a dumpling, but and also it's called a momo. Like everyone just wants to say that. You, you gave me this address, thirty-seven fifty
0: seventy-fourth, but I do not see a dumpling store. I see a mobile phone store.
7: Right. So we're in front of this year's winner of the Momo Trophy. It's locally called Tibetan Mobile because it's inside of a mobile phone store. The actual name is Lassa Fest fast food, but no one really knows that. So, and there's no, there's zero signs in the front.
0: Yeah, I just see like ultra mobile, 4G LTE, and lots of dudes
7: inside buying phones. Well, they feel like people that are walking past are not really gonna care about a Momo place yet. Like everyone that goes there, they're all in the network. They all know each other. So, um. They're not in the mobile network, they're in the Momo network. Definitely, they're in the Momo network,
0: yeah. It says, you and me wireless providing excellent services. Exactly, every time. All right, well let's go um, munch some momos. Yeah, deal, all right. All right, so we are walking into You and Me Mobile.
7: Here's the only sign for the restaurant that says Tibetan restaurant is open. It's like a piece of uh, paper torn from a legal pad. (laughs) This is the best place, Momo Place, you know? I
0: just, I, I, Can I just
7: get your full name? Sanjay Guragai. Why is it hiding behind your, your store? Well, because uh, they were established over here since, you know, um, many years, like eight, nine years, I guess. And um, they are the first Tibetan restaurant in New York. They started in this place, you know? Back then, it was very hard to find a place in the front. They don't have that opportunity, so they established back there. They are running very, very well. Are you Are you Tibetan? I'm not Tibetan. bad. I'm from Burma. Oh, okay. What do you think of the momos? Momos—they are—they are the best. Yeah, you know, if you when you're addicted to it, you have to eat every day. All right, we're gonna check it out. Thank you. Um,
0: all right, so we're we're stepping behind the mobile phone store in this top secret momo place. People are eating. There's a picture of the Dalai Lama. Hi. How are you? My name is Brendan. What is your name?
7: Uh, my name is Love Sun
0: Oh, there it is. Your your golden momo trophy. Are you proud?
7: Yeah. <laughs> we get one order of momos? Okay.
0: And so just stuffing the dumpling. So it's a veggie momo and then that's also beef? And this is beef. It looks pretty good. And you'll steam them? Yeah. Okay, great. All right, they're already here. And so as far as you can tell, what's the difference between momos and regular dumplings?
7: What we see here, most of the Tibetan ones are beef and maybe onions or chives and oil and garlic and ginger maybe. They're pretty simple and soupy. But, I mean, it's up to everyone's interpretation of what they are. The Nepalese ones are, usually have more curry in them. But again, it's, you know, everyone's mom's cooking. It's all different. you have any momo eating strategies? Try not to pop it open,
6: yeah. All
7: right, we have an actual momo
0: expert here. So what is your name?
6: My name is Jadso.
0: Jadso, okay. And you're going to give us a little momo eating workshop. So you have a regular spoon.
6: Soup inside is very hard. So when I eat, I cut it like a little bit of this and then I take too slowly, put in the hot sauce, whatever. So
0: you take it, you inhale some of the broth yes. to cool it out, and we'll then you fill it with hot sauce. Yeah. All right, thank you for that help. You yeah. just went to Momo school.
7: <laughs> Last time here, I, I was here, I saw someone like shotgun it, like a beer.
0: Well, I'm going to try what he I'm going to just follow the rules here. <laughs> mm.
7: These are really good. And so you've become so enamored of this culture. You're visiting there this week, right? Yeah, I'm actually leaving tomorrow to go to Kathmandu. I would never have gone if I hadn't moved to this area. Do you have Momo places on your list? It's hard to find them. People recommended them, but they're all like, you go down this road and it's across the street from this temple. I don't know yet, but it seems like there's no actual addresses anywhere. It's kind of like the mobile phone store here. It's hiding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like totally informal Momo geography there. So
0: Rico, I had an idea. I told Jeff that he should start a shop right. that uses local sustainable ingredients, and okay. he could call it Slow Momo.
2: And then he just shook his head sadly, I bet. Yeah, he actually kind of did do that. Like I'm doing right now? Yeah, Is it like this? still a good idea. Folks, coming up, actor Michael Sarah shares some inspiring words from Gene Wilder.
8: Michael, hi.
2: I'm shaving right now. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues.
0: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis
2: Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, rock legend Viv Albertine says the hardest thing about being a punk was other punks, but first it's time to meet our guest of honor.
0: All right. And this week, it's actor Michael Cera. In the cult sitcom Arrested Development, he played George Michael Bluth. A straight-laced kid secretly in love with his cousin. He also starred in the hit Judd Apatow-produced comedy Superbad, the Oscar-winning Indie Juno, and he got impaled by a streetlight in last year's comedy This Is The End. Great moment. Talk about range. Yeah. Yeah. But right now he's on Broadway in the Kenneth Lonergan play This Is Our Youth, alongside co-stars Kieran Culkin and Tavi Gevinson. Michael plays Warren, a dejected youth with an unhappy home life. And when I met with him backstage at the Court Theater, I asked him about his character's animated body language.
8: Yeah, John Waters came and saw the show, and he said, your body English is really loud.
0: <laughs> I yeah. i heard that expression before, but that was kind of cool. It would be interesting if you said your body English has an accent. <laughs>
8: yeah, exactly.
0: Your body English seems to be not a first language. <laughs> So how did you decide to make your character Warren such a physical presence with his you know, hands digging deep into his pockets and his loping gait? You
8: know, you're rehearsing for like every day for a month or so before we start doing it in front of an audience. That stuff kind of just creeps in, I guess. The more discussions you have, the more you kind of understand the character and talk about it and conceptualize the blocking and everything and also kind of playing
0: off of uh, Kieran. And then, unlike a movie, you inhabit this character night after night for months this is your first big stage production. Uh, what have you learned about theater versus working in television and movies?
8: What I would say is that the challenge is to keep discovering, you know, while doing that, to not get too set in who the guy is, and to, to constantly being a, in a state of discovering because that's
0: what'll keep it alive. keeps it alive for you. Yeah. You also have a live audience, and you can see how they respond. Have they helped you discover things about your character? Not
8: really. I mean, the audience. You know, the audience can be almost. The audience really wants to have a good time, and they want to laugh, and part of what can lead you to getting kind of set in your performance is, you know, knowing, okay, this moment coming up, I can get like a nice laugh, and kind of playing to that, and you can limit yourself that way, if you just kind of crank out the beats, you know.
0: It must be really hard as an actor, though, to not respond to that.
8: Yeah, because, you know, that's your validation, especially in a play like this. Or you do kind of measure how we're doing based on laughter, even though it's got much more going for it than just laughs, I think.
0: So while I was prepping for this interview, I got a chance to see Crystal Fairy, which is a smaller indie film you were in recently. And in it, you play kind of a jerk. And I was wondering if it signaled the beginning of a shift away uh, from playing socially awkward teens.
8: Yeah, I guess that might be how it kind of seems, I guess, if you're like outside looking at someone's work. But from the inside, it's much. you're much less kind of... Uh, puppeteering your own career as you are just kind of living your life and navigating it as best you can. you
0: know. Is it true that you were a kind of a Rabbit Bill Murray fan? Sure. Yeah, of course. And so when you get, when you got into acting, were you looking specifically to do kind of comedy stuff? Or?
8: Well, I mean, I started when I was like nine, you know, I was just kind of, I had no plan. Real, I didn't even really think I could work in front of a camera. It didn't really start like that. And then it just kind of went there and, you know, it was exciting. I was just like, I was just following it, hoping it could continue. You know, I mean, when you're nine, you're like, going to school and you're, you know, you're not thinking about your life really. And just the thought that I could keep working on more things was, was so alluring that I just kept trying to follow that and working toward it. You just kind of found a joy in performance? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was so fun. It was, it's so unusual to be, you know, like on a, in a commercial when you're nine and you're at school and your kids are like, I saw you on TV. It's really strange. Yeah. And I always had fun. Everyone was always really cool with me. I mean, you know, it's when you're nine and you're working on a production, you're working with older people and you're a kid. That's unusual. And everyone was so kind and encouraging with me. And it just was good for me. It just it was something I could do.
0: So um, we have two standard questions we ask our guests. Oh,
8: yeah. yeah, I'm a little. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the first question is, uh, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Let me think. Let me try and be honest now. Wait, were you not being honest before? <laughs>
8: yeah, no, I, I guess. I mean, people ask about Arrested Development all the time, to the point where it becomes kind of. You just start to feel kind of lame, constantly repeating that you don't know anything. So I, I guess I find that question annoying because it makes me boring.
0: Oh, they ask you like, oh, "Is this gonna be a movie?" or this sort
8: yeah, of. Yeah, and I always just I have nothing. And every time I say, I don't know, they just go, okay. And, they, and it just
0: makes you feel like totally inadequate. But it's also interesting. I mean, how lucky you are if you were into comedy and kind of into Bill Murray yeah. to do Arrested Development and then kind of get into the Judd Abateau community. Yeah, it's not lost on me at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was a total miracle that that show happened to me
8: yeah. and um, that I got to be around those guys. You know, I mean, that's a huge part of my life. And the most amazing thing about all those guys, Will Arnett and David Cross and... Bateman and Tony Hale and all those guys, was they would never change their behavior around Alia and me, who's my cousin on the show, Alia. And you
0: were both adolescents at the time.
8: Yeah, and I mean, they, you know, it's not like we would walk into the room and they would, like, censor themselves. And that's amazing. I mean, it's it's incredible that we were 14 and they were kind of thinking of us as equals, or they were just, they just didn't have... They just had no boundaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was great, because it really felt like we got to be hanging out with those guys.
0: You may have just upset your parents right now if they heard this interview.
8: My mom was around, and she knows, I mean... Jason Bateman said the most insane things to me
0: in front of my mother. And your mom was okay? Yeah, I mean, she just would laugh, you know? It just, it's just, it's too insane. Well, our second standard question is, tell me something we don't know. It could be a personal item that you haven't shared in interviews, yeah. or it could be an interesting fact about the world.
8: Jeez, I wonder what I can say. Well, I'll just, this just popped in my head. I don't know. It's not really uh, worthy of anyone else's dinner conversation, but I ha- I got to have lunch with Gene Wilder one day. Wow. I just finished working on this really big project, it was like six months, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, and I worked with Jason Schwartzman on that, and afterwards I had no idea what to do with myself, because it's weird you know, you just go from working every day to nothing, and I was just kind of Had this lull? Yeah, this like free fall. And Jason said, why don't you just like call people that you love and ask if you can have lunch with them? And I was like, I'll do that for sure. And I so I asked my agent, hey, can I get in touch with Gene Wilder? And then I got his phone number and he's like, he's expecting your call. Why Gene Wilder of all the people in the world? I think he's amazing. I had just read his uh, autobiography, so he was kind of on my mind. And I called him and he was like, Michael, hi, I'm shaving right now. And there's shaving cream in my ear. And I went, okay. And he goes, well, why don't you come down to San Diego and have lunch with me? And I went down there and I brought him a a jar of honey. Why did you bring him honey? Uh, His wife and him were sick. And uh, I just wanted to bring something, some kind of a gesture. You should have brought him
0: like um, aftershave.
8: Yeah, that would have been good. Or a razor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and he just talked about everything and uh, he told me a story about jean renoir he had lunch with Jean renoir
0: one time jean renoir wow the, the great filmmaker yes the, the grand illusion yeah.
8: yeah and uh renoir was sitting and a ray of sun was hitting his eye and a tear kept coming out of the eye a constant kind of stream of tears and Jean finally said hey do you want to switch seats would you like and he goes no no the sun feels good on my sore eye Isn't that so sweet? Huh. That was just a great moment in my life, and then we hugged and uh, I drove off and he was waving goodbye, and I haven't seen him since, but that was something I'll always be thankful for.
0: You know, this interview has just become, like, we're in Thanksgiving, it's like the turducken interview. Like, I got to interview you, and then I just feel like I got to interview Gene Wilder a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I mean... He lives in you, Michael. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Why are you crying right now?
8: (laughs) You know, I just... It was a nice day.
0: Thought it was the sun, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's these bulbs, you know. Michael Cera, who was not crying. He actually oh seemed quite at home in his dressing room, Rico. That's a relief. <laughs> yeah. He even had a guitar there, which he obviously puts to good use because right now we're listening to a song of his. It's uh-huh. called Old Grey Whistle, and it's one of 17 tunes on his album that he released earlier this year called True
2: That. Hey, let's put a link to the album on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Read my mind. In mid-1970s London, a bunch of kids who called themselves punks started bashing out sometimes primitive but literally revolutionary rock music, in the process changing the music and fashion industries and making themselves the targets of derision and violence. And our guest Viv Albertine was at the center of all of it. She formed the band The Flowers of Romance with a young Sid Vicious. She dated Mick Jones of the Clash, and most famously, she played lead guitar in the all-girl band The Slits. She talks about all that and more in her funny, sometimes shocking, and hugely insightful new memoir. It's called Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. And Viv, it's great to have you.
10: Well, thank you for asking me. Uh,
2: the Slits album Cut is considered a classic of its day, way more sophisticated and unpredictable than what a lot of people think of as punk. What song would you like people to hear off it?
10: I think it's got to be Typical Girls, really, because it was a whole list of all the things that were expected of you as a girl at that time, and we were so obviously rebelling against the whole lot, and I think that one says it all, really.
2: so ahead of its time, but it's actually interesting. In the book, you talk about the first record that blew your mind as a kid. It's a very classic place to start for a young British girl in the mid-1960s.
10: The Beatles, you can't do that. The B-side of Can't Buy Me Love.
2: That's exactly right. The way that it is described in the book is so electric. Reading it, I was reminded of that moment when I first encountered rock and roll. I'm wondering if writing this book did the same thing for you or if you've just kind of had that rock and roll charge with you ever since 1964 or whenever that
5: was
10: I don't think I've ever had it as strongly as I did that day actually you know and it seems so young especially you know looking back to the well, it was the 60s I suppose when young girls and boys weren't as developed as they are now and so into music no one no one heard music much not much on the TV so to have heard that record mm-hmm. at my babysitter's house was it was like a portal to another world. And I was so grateful <laughs> that there was another world yeah. out there. I was, I was deathly bored with my life. We, you know, we were poor. There was no sort of culture in the home. Food was ugly and brown and watery. <laughs> <laughs> and to have these screaming boys, yeah. you know, it was, it, it was electrifying.
2: Do you still get that feeling when you hear that song?
10: I do when I hear that song. I, I don't so much when I hear contemporary music so much, you know, very, very rarely. I mean, I was, I was in um, a beautiful cake shop the other day and I heard this record and I thought, oh my God, you know, this is a lovely, poignant solo voice, you know, a girl singing and there's something really moving me. At last I'm being moved by modern music and I listened really hard and it was Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Wasn't a girl at all. You do write. I mean, I was going to ask you this later, but there's a quote in the book that is, because I grew up with music that was trying to change the world. That's what I still expect from it. Yeah. Is there any music that does that for you?
10: Not first world music. Not, not Western world music, really. Because the thing is, the world has changed for us, uh, and. I think young people are more educated, more intelligent, possibly, more worldly, and and there isn't the need to kick down the doors like we had to back then, to be heard. I mean, young people back then had nothing in England. I mean, Britain, we had nothing on TV, no youth television, no youth culture. No one was interested in you if you were poor and young. On top of that, you had no expectations. And the only good thing about that was that you were kind of invisible or at least ignored. (laughs) So they sort of didn't notice us getting up to quite much trouble until it was too late. <laughs> but um,
2: but it sounds like that's a bad thing. It results in lousy music if kids are now intelligent and and revered.
10: Um I wouldn't say lousy music, but I don't think it's the sort of music that um generates revolution you know it might make you feel good it might make you want to dance it might help you when you're down but i don't think it is a call to arms Mm. like it was and i don't think that's a bad thing i mean maybe we need a generation or two of just hard working you know (laughs) fairly level-headed young people and also their opportunities i mean for a for a girl now, she could think, oh, I'll be a human rights lawyer, I'll be an activist, I'll run a company, I'll do this, I'll start up my own thing. I mean, I had none of those opportunities. Mm. And I don't think there's anything wrong, you know, with having a sort of different slant on life and music being, it's, it's probably, it's gone back down to entertainment for a while, I think.
2: Well, let's go back to the 70s, where you are doing kind of the extraordinary, you're you're playing in punk bands at a time when being in a band is still a pretty outsidery thing to do, and women certainly didn't join rock bands. And punks were hated by most of English society. Of all Mm. of those obstacles, you had a lot of them. Which was the toughest to overcome?
10: Um, No, I think the toughest was the peer group, really, because we were so hard on each other. Oh, wow. Any time you you wrote a lyric or you you wrote wrote a riff or you dressed in a certain way or you held hands with your boyfriend, everything we did, your records in your record collection, was torn to pieces by the rest of the pack. Um, It was just really uncomfortable. It wasn't happy-go-lucky time. It was a really, really strict time and we were strict about everything. So I think that was the hardest thing. We we got attacked and stabbed and abused, but we were so convinced we were on the right track and had a mission that we just thought other people were fools. But (laughs) our own peer group mattered a lot to us. But they were, v- we were all very, very tough on each other. And that was quite uncomfortable, actually.
2: Give me maybe the most outstanding example of kind of being judged on your, I don't know, <laughs> punk, well, whether you were a poser or a punk, I guess. Yeah.
10: I mean, the ter- most terrible things you could call the other person were either a poser or a careerist. <laughs> but um, everything was very strict. I mean, I remember Sid teaching me about the width of collars on on suits and jackets, which were acceptable and not acceptable. (laughs) Um, I I remember when um, Chrissy Hind answered a question that Vivian Westwood asked her with, oh, I don't know, I just go with the flow and Vivian wouldn't speak to her again for a year for such a woolly answer.
2: (laughs) There is no flow. There are rules. Is that the idea?
10: Yeah, there was no flow. That was, that was hippie-ish. That was wishy-washy. That was not knowing your stance, which side of the you know, bed you came down on kind of thing. You had to know where you stood in life. You had to be able to stand up for it. Actually, in a way, you could almost have any opinion as long as you could argue it. But yeah, going with the flow was weak.
2: <laughs> um, I should say that this book took me longer to read than it should have because I kept stopping to go on YouTube and watch videos of all the bands you mentioned. (laughs) And at one point you talk about seeing a young David Bowie, and I'm Mm -hmm. watching this amazing video of him playing live in I think 1973 or something, and halfway down the comment section someone wrote, those hot girls in the audience are all our mothers. Which,
10: That's true. Which
2: feels like a lame thing to say on a lot of levels yeah. but it did make me wonder looking back on this life which, which was extreme in so many ways how do you look at yourself now as a grown up?
10: Well you know in a way sort of writing the book reflected back to me that I can still think the way I used to think. I, You know and anyone can still be that youthful person they were with, the, with those morals and those dreams. It has to mutate a bit. Maybe you don't shout and swear and spit on the pavement anymore but I still feel the spirit of punk is in that book in the style of the writing in the way I've lived my life you know I've, I've taken chances all the way through my life I did try and conform somewhere in the middle there it went horribly wrong but I am ultimately still that person and a lot of sort of older people who've read the book have found that as well It sort of reaffirmed to them no I can still be that person and younger people who read it are just so jealous <laughs> <laughs>
2: Viv Albertine, she is indeed still a punk. You are Mm. listening to a track from the solo album she released last year. It totally rages. And if you are a fan of rock music, and you also don't mind some very raunchy passages, I can't recommend her new book highly enough. It's called Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys.
0: Wow, there's a lot of repetition in this week's show. Uh, (laughs) It's an easy title to remember, though. That's true. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. We'll just say that once. Next week, we talk with celebrated filmmaker Mike Lee about his new movie, Mr. Turner, and with actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt about the TV show he makes with the help
2: of Maybe You. Until then, please note, Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Jeff Peters engineered this week. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney.
0: And folks, we are overjoyed this week to welcome listeners of WAMU in Washington, D.C. and WNYC in New York. Hooray. We hope our humble show can enrich dinner party conversations in these two backwater towns. Just full of barbarians, both of them. Until next time,
5: bon appétit. I- no oh.